Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. We're going to be in James chapter 3. Um, we're going to start in 1, 26 and 27. So feel free to take a look or just follow along and listen for a moment. This is going to give us a little bit of context of how we're going to jump into James 3, 1, 1 through 12. So we're going to first run, read 1, 26 and 27, and then I will go to 3, 1. James 1, 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. Not many of you, this is 3.1, should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. God, we give our hearts over to you. We ask, as Jared prayed before, we believe. That's why we gather this morning. We love you. Help our unbelief. Help our unlove. As so often our hearts are distracted by good things. We're distracted away from the best thing. And all these good things become idols. God, I give this time over to you as we worship through the preaching of the word. We ask that Jesus Christ would be proclaimed and that we would see Jesus as big and able and far above able to conquer sin, our sin, our rebellion, our wicked, fiery, destructive tongues. We need you. So I pray today that you would take our hearts, submit them to you, and that we would listen to what our pastor and brother James has said to us. And so that we might see Christ clearly as the only hope that we have to be Christians at all and to know fullness of joy in you and completion in Christ. So we pray today for our hearts. Give us ears to hear 
may we be like Jesus Christ, love our fellow man, and have a tongue that is under control. We praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're into graphic novels, um, then you might really enjoy the approach that James takes to this passage today. Not that I have, I'm going to flash up a bunch of uh, pictures or I'm not inviting us all to Comic-Con or anything like that. What I'm trying to say here is what James does is he, he presents this in a way that is full of illustrations. He is full of it. It's over and over and over again, word picture after word picture after word picture. When you open up a comic book or a graphic novel, you'll immediately notice that the author is not merely using words, although they do, but they're using illustrations so that you can see and recognize and feel almost with the characters and what they're doing, so you can clearly understand what that author is trying to portray to you. That's James. He seems to be the king of using real-life examples and illustrations to help us understand what he's saying. Here's the plan for today. We are going to start with understanding the context. Dropping right in in 3-1, how do we do this? What does it fit? Uh, why is James jumping into the discussion on the tongue? Uh, at this time, is it random? Is there a purpose? How does it fit together? That's the first thing we're going to do. Then we're going to actually walk through this text together. We're going to see right from the beginning at 1 and 2 that there's a real warning for us here. This not many of you should become teachers. We'll see that he uses this though as a springboard into the discussion on the tongue. Then we'll work through 3 through 5, which is the tongue is very powerful. We'll specifically see that in 5 at the beginning there. But he's going to use three illustrations to show us and to help us understand horses, ships, and small fires. Then from 5 to 12, he's going to show us the uncontrolled tongue is inconsistent with true Christian faith. It is, in verse 5 and 6, an agent of evil. The tongue is also one that cannot be tamed, we find out in 7 and 8. And then we see in 9 through 12 that it's double-minded, what James has already talked about. So we'll do the context, then we'll walk through the text, and then we'll end up with some application. After we walk through this, we'll consider what, again, our pastor James is telling us and reminding us what we should do about these verses and how us as Cornerstone in 2018 should react to this. What does it mean for us? So, context. Why are we starting this conversation about the tongue? At this point in the letter, we shouldn't be surprised by the topic. He's already started talking about this back in chapter 1. In the grand scheme of James's sermon, this is about receiving wisdom properly. We've already seen this. This is what wisdom looks like. We know we need wisdom. We know that he gives it. He gives it freely. Uh, he gives it to us in the implanted word. We know that we're not supposed to be hearers only, but doers of the word. And we've been shown a few ways how to be doers of the word. Now, at the beginning, I read these first two verses, and I'm going to read them again for us. I want you to pick up on the context and why it's making sense with 3, 1 through 12. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I want you to notice a few things. He shows that bridling the tongue is critical to being a genuine believer. We might expect then that he's going to come back to this and expand it a little bit more in the letter if it's important to him. Also notice that he talks about visiting orphans and widows, impartially then loving your neighbor. And then he talks about being unstained from the world. 
Now, we've hit all three of these topics in a previous sermon, but that discussion was only a beginning. It gave us the seeds of what he's going to expand now into the letter. When we started chapter 2, we saw that verses 1 through 13 were all about showing love to all men, impartially or without partiality. James exhausted us with three reasons why partiality was a heinous sin. Then right after that, if you remember those last two weeks, what we've been covering is 2, 14 through 26. He gave us this important doctrinal statement teaching us that faith without works is dead and useless. Last time we showed that James is using this timeless teaching to show that Christians, show us Christians that if they are not doing the things that Christ does, loving their neighbor as themselves impartially, then they are not Christians at all. James is using this doctrine to help us hearers see the gravity of their actions, of their doing, of their works, or of their lack of actions. Now that he has done this, while it's still fresh in the listener's ear, he will move back to discussing other important actions for the believers and what they're doing. He did that already. Now he does this doctrinal statement. Now he's coming back to this and helping us understand that there are actions that the believers should be taking care of. Namely, we should start to talk about the use of the tongue. Now, I I want you to look at your Bibles for a minute because you're going to see this structure pretty easily. Your, Your English translation will be good. If you look at 2, 1 through 13, that's like a big paragraph, possibly two paragraphs. That's one section all about loving your neighbor without partiality. We covered that as one big section. Then look at 2, 14 through 26. That's also one big section. That's the last thing that we covered. That's that faith without works is dead. Now look in the next part, 3, 1 through 12. Bridle your tongue. Do you see how he's got three main sections there? What he's doing is a practical teaching at the beginning, then he's giving a doctrine of why it matters. Now he's moving back into practical teaching again. He's going right back into it. He's worked hard to prove that wisdom or faith acts. What he's going to do now is skillfully use the momentum that he just gained from this doctrinal teaching on a faith that actually works itself out and pick up the discussion on practical sins that the churches are struggling with. He's now ready then to talk about the bridling of the tongue. That's how we got here. So let's start in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Wait, I thought we were about ready to jump in and talk about, you know, the tongue. What's this about teachers that he's doing? Uh, I thought we were going to dive right into this topic, specifically putting a bit in the mouth, all that kind of stuff. Isn't it talking about the tongue? We are. Just wait a second. We'll see. James starts his discussion off with a very real warning. It's not as though it doesn't matter. Being a teacher was a position of honor, prestige, and and authority. So with it came a lot of things that people wanted. We don't have a lot of understanding about this. He doesn't expand on this, but we can see that a lot of people were signing up or putting themselves out there, and they were carelessly willing to be a teacher without regard to the consequences of one who was a teacher. This was serious for him. James then addresses this issue. However, He's not overly concerned with their church leadership structure. If, if he was, we would see him do a lot more work about that and talk about what types of things would describe a leader, etc., etc. Um, but instead, he moves us back. So we start out, he says, not many of you should become teachers. Then he gives us a reason for that statement. For you know that we who teach, he concludes himself, will be judged with greater strictness he's saying that last phrase a little bit easier is we will receive a greater judgment. 
we ask ourselves, why? Why should a teacher have a greater judgment? Are there like, once we, we die and go to heaven, there's like two doors of judgment, like those for the teachers and those for the rest of us that just signed up to help out with taking the trash out after church? Like, is, is that the way it works? Sorry, not really. Believe it or not, the thing that's going to help us the most understand this about the judgment piece and what does it mean to have greater judgment will be the context. As we continue to work through this, we'll see possibly what he means by this. Look at the next verse. Verse 2, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. James begins this verse by putting a fact out there that we all understand. He makes the point that we all, meaning all Christians, stumble in many ways. He is saying to us that we all represent different types of sins. Uh, if we took all of us together this morning, we probably will cover several different categories of sin right here in this room. We understand that. Our sins come in all different shapes and sizes. But then James hones in on one particular one, one particular way of sinning. He says that if a person doesn't stumble in what he says, then he is a perfect man. He brings our attention to the discussion of what comes out of the mouth, words, and how we use them. Briefly, let me go back then to answer verse 1. Why should a teacher have greater judgment? Think about the job of a teacher and tell me what is their most important vehicle of transferring truth on a regular, consistent basis to their students. It's words. It's speech, that which is coming out of someone's mouth. Obviously, teachers will use lessons and they'll show different things and demonstrate, but a teacher uses their tongue over and over and over again to teach. They are consistently instructing, responding, correcting, admonishing, or exhorting. Their job is almost impossible without the use of many words. And so, why should a teacher have a greater judgment? Well, it's not that they go to a higher court of judgment when they get to heaven. It's not that they took the left door versus the right. Rather, in the context, James is simply saying that they will end up being accountable for authoritatively saying a lot more stuff than anyone else will. And so they have the possibility of far greater judgment because they've said things way more often in an authoritative manner. Now, this isn't a scare tactic. It isn't meant to help us think, oh man, I better not become a teacher. That's not the point of this. What he's trying to do is help us think about the task of teaching and how serious it really is. He's also trying to push us into the next conversation, the topic of our speech. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, or the actual Greek word is just this, word, if anyone does not stumble in word, that's important, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Now, James has given the church a command. Not many of you should become teachers. Then he's given us a reason, for there's greater judgment for those who are constantly using their tongues. And now he uses that reason to introduce another aspect of being complete or perfect. This idea that we've already worked on over and over, teleos. Notice that he says he is a perfect man. As we have said several times throughout James, this is not the idea of flawlessness or perfection as though there's a sinlessness here. But rather, we're talking about Christian maturity, wholeness, not having a divided loyalty, uh, completion, one that being holy to God. This is a man whose insides match his outsides. 
He is complete in that way. This is a man whose faith works with his works. He is not a hearer only, but a doer of the word. James has just used this warning as a springboard into the conversation on controlling your tongue, a very important part of becoming complete in Christ. James states that the person who cannot control, excuse me, the person who can control his words is a perfect man. Further, he states that this person is also able then to bridle his whole body. Now, this seems like a big, bold statement to say. Like, if you get control of this little thing, then you can bridle the whole body. You know, what, what do you mean by that, James? You know, can you, can you prove it? What, what do you mean if a person does not stumble in his words, then he's able to bridle the whole body? Can, can you clarify uh, how something like that would work? Sure. Let's start by showing this, he says. The tongue is a small part of the body, but is extremely powerful. That's like the first main point he's going to make. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it's extremely powerful. James says, I'll give you three illustrations to explain what I mean. Verse 3 through 5. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Three examples or three illustrations. Again, if you think of that graphic novel, three different boxes to see what he's talking about. First, we have horses in verse 3. A person that wishes to guide or use a horse, a very powerful and potentially dangerous beast, uses a bit in its mouth. The whole purpose of the bit or bridle is to control the entire horse. And once the rider has the bit in the mouth of the horse, he controls the whole horse. Moves on to the second thing. We have ships in verse 4. These vessels are huge and use the great power of wind as their propulsion. And yet, they are guided by a very small rudder. The pilot uses this small piece on the ship to direct the whole ship wherever he wants to go. Then we have third. This is the idea of a small fire in verse 5. Think of a single match once it's struck sets fire to small tinder, maybe some dry field grass. And what happens? It goes up in flames and starts to grow. And soon the fire is spread to the entire field. And then it catches fire to the forest that's next to it. And you know, as soon as we know it, it's got all of Northern California on fire. This thing starts from a single match and spreads like wildfire. There's a great effect and it can become huge. All three of these illustrations show how a small member, the tongue, has great power. He is showing us, you don't believe me? I'll show you just for regular stuff. The rudder, the bit in the horse's mouth, a match struck. All these tiny things have huge impacts. The first two illustrations show that this power, when harnessed or controlled by one willing to take control of it, is a powerful force for much potential good. But the last illustration takes a different tact. The last illustration takes it beyond power, and it conveys to us the idea of immense destructive power. There's a marked difference if you see that in the first two examples, right, and the third one. Even the beginning of verse 5 actually stops to make the statement 
Um, you know, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And then he moves on to the next statement. His point is, he's kind of saying, so you should use it properly. Now he turns, though, to this destructive power of the tongue. We've been convinced. Yes, we get it. The tongue is a small member, but it boasts of great things. But James isn't done. James will now show us that an uncontrolled tongue is inconsistent with Christian faith. We already saw that a tongue, although small, has a lot of power. But now James is moving on to his next main point, which is that an uncontrolled tongue is inconsistent with Christian faith. How will he show us this? Illustrations again. Verse 5 and 6, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Whoa. Uh, it's, it's like he's saying, I'm not, down, I'm not dancing around this anymore, like giving you, it's like unto this, or it's as that. He goes straight to metaphor. That small fire that sets the forest ablaze, that's the tongue. That's how serious this is. It is then, it's, he's going to point out three things about the tongue. It is an agent of evil. Think about that. It is an agent of evil. He, he shows us by three things. He calls it the world of unrighteousness. Now, your translation is going to say a world of unrighteousness. I always thought this was referring to like a world of problem. You're in a world of hurt, like a, like a lot of it, right? There's a, a world of unrighteousness. There is actually a Greek article here, the. I don't know why they chose a, uh, but they, it is the world. This reason this is important for us to know is because James has already used this term. And it's very important to his argument. Do you remember back, if we go back to verse 27, where James says, that you ought to be unstained from the world? We talked about this already. We talked about this worldly, ungodly, anti-God system and all that it produces, its desires, its priorities. That's what we're talking about. So when James says this, he is meaning the world of unrighteousness. James is saying that the tongue is basically used as an agent to channel worldly philosophy and worldly priorities. It is then, he can say, kind of bring up and say, it's the world of unrighteousness. It's a channel for this. Second thing is that tongue is set among our members. It represents the whole self. It is one member among many. And because that's true, when it speaks poorly, it stains the whole body. Every part of it is stained because of that one member. It is part and it represents. The body cannot divorce itself from the tongue. I mean, you don't have the foot saying, what did he just say? Nope, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm not part of that. And the foot walks away. It doesn't work that way. The tongue represents every part of who you are, your body is. And thus, it allows for what is really going on inside to come out. What really is representative of the whole is now coming out through this one little member, your tongue. As a little side note there, he's going to even go a little further and say that there is not one part of our life from cradle to grave and beyond that is unaffected by the fiery tongue. It truly is a devastating force, a fire. But the last thing, so we talked about the world of unrighteousness. Uh, it's set among your members. But then the last thing is, where did the fire come from? James says that its source is from hell. Our uncontrolled tongues then can be agents of the devil. 
you think James is being dramatic, but think about Jesus' words, right? Think about when Peter told Jesus in Matthew 16, 23 that he wasn't going to suffer and die. What did Jesus say back to him? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God. So in these two verses, we see that the tongue can represent the world, right? The world of unrighteousness, the flesh or the self, and the devil. James sounds a lot like Paul in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 when he speaks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul says this from Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, talking about Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. He has just identified all of that coming through the agent of the tongue. All those sources of evil get channeled right out through here. What else, James? Well, there's another huge problem here. Not only is it an agent of evil, look at verse 7 and 8. The tongue cannot be tamed. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. James is going to bring us back to Genesis for a moment. If you know Genesis, you're thinking, okay, what way? Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. It sounds an awful lot like what he's saying here. Every kind, or every, kind is another word for species, every species of beast, bird, reptile and sea creature has been tamed by humanity. This is creation language, and James brings us to remember Adam's and our responsibility to exercise dominion over creation as representatives made in the image of God. That's who we are. That was the task that we have been given. But then this horrible reality here, he says, that although all these species of animals are being subdued by humanity, there is no one of the human species that can tame the tongue. This is a key verse for us. We are going to come back to this in greater detail in the end, but for now we'll keep moving. There is no one of the human species that can tame this tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Uh, a restless evil, what is that? Let me give you the same word. It, this is the, I think this is a better word. It helps us a little bit more. It's just kind of awkward in English, but a better word would be unstable. Remember where we've heard that? It doesn't quote, quite flow nicely here, but we've heard this word before. James is using this word on purpose. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 8, James talked about the double-minded man who was unstable in all of his ways. Same word here. James is showing that an uncontrolled tongue is unstable, almost like it's unpredictable. You're not sure what. You can't predict it. You can't get your hands on it. It's unruly, almost like it's prone to breaking out of its cage. Catch the next part. Yet, worse than this, it's deadly, literally bulging with poisonous venom. Listen to the psalmist. I'm going to read from Psalm 140, verse 3. You're not going to see it in James there. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's, and under their lips is the venom of asps. This is not new for the biblical writers. They realize the potential and the poison that is in our mouths. This is the tongue, unstable, filled with deadly venom. 
but he's not done yet. Not only is the tongue an agent of evil, not only does it not be tamed, but lastly, it is double-minded. Even worse, James has pointed out this problem already in the first chapter, but now he brings to our attention the danger of an uncontrolled tongue being an agent of double-mindedness. Look at verse 9 through 12. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James ends his discussion by showing us that our words betray just how double-minded we really are. It comes out. We can't help it. James says that in this one member, our tongue, we bless Jesus and the Father, our Lord and Father, and then in the same member, we curse people. We need to see for a minute how ridiculous this is and how shameful this is. He's saying that the tongue speaks blessings and praises to God and the Father and, and Jesus who is, by the way, Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God, right? Catch that wording, the image of the invisible God. And the same tongue calls out curses, literally asking God to cut off his divine favor from people. He calls out these curses upon people who are made in the image of God. Do you get the irony there? When we curse the image of God, we are acting out against God himself. And so people, I don't care what they look like, are all made in the image of God. And so when we curse that, we curse God. If you remember, Jesus actually prohibited his disciples from cursing others in Luke 6.28. Instead, he told his followers, bless those that curse you. Believers should not be cursing other image bearers. But to get back to the larger point of this text, we need to see that the real problem here is that the same tongue is doing two completely opposite things. It's double-minded. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. What is really going on here? Is it possible for you to call yourself a believer and do the things that James is warned against? James is going to answer this question with his final set of illustrations now. Verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? When you find the source of a spring, you will find some of the purest, sweetest water known to man. But the absurd question comes. So when you find that, when you get to the source, does it have two taps? Is there one for sweet water, one for salt water? One for fresh and one for salt? No, of course not. The whole thing is characterized by it being a fresh spring of water. The source is going to produce what is its essence. It's going to produce that. It's going to produce what, made, what it was made to produce. Now, how about a few plant illustrations, he says. Can a fig tree produce olives? Can a grapevine produce figs? We have those around here. Do we ever see them producing figs on a grapevine? No, the obvious answer is no. Why? Because a fig tree makes only that which it truly is figs. A grapevine has nothing in its DNA to produce figs. So what does it make? At its core, it makes grapes. It's a vine. It's made to make grapes. 
And while we are at it, let's just throw one more illustration on there for extra emphasis. A salt pond, something that is identified to all, to have all the right conditions to produce salt, cannot yield fresh water. That's not its essence. It's, it's, it's got everything set up to be a salt pond. You're not going to get fresh water out of this thing. It doesn't make that. What does it make? Salt. Duh. That's what it is. And so it makes it. This shouldn't surprise us, guys, that he's using these things to point us back to our tongue and actually our hearts. We know that Jesus in Luke 6.45 says that a tree is known by its fruits. We actually read part of this this morning from a different gospel. But he says then, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It comes out. What is really at the center of your being will come out. Seems uh, very consistent with the tie for faith and works. But back to the question that we've asked here ourselves earlier. Is it possible then to call yourself a believer and do these things that he's warned against? Simple answer is no. The tongue will betray you. It is so quickly showing us that we are double-minded. The uncontrolled tongue will show you that you are unstable and double-minded. And so this is the way that he ends our passage almost with like this feeling of despair, like, oh my goodness, the tongue is terrible. It's very powerful, but it's destructive and terrible and double-minded. It betrays me. So, it's a lot of information. What are we to do with this? Let's start by the obvious one. I mean, this is just a, just a softball pitch. The information that we just received was all based coming out of verse 26 of chapter 1, Right? If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religious is worthless. The first thing that we can walk away from is this. Simply this, guys. Bridle your tongue. Control your speech. Think of the context that you are in. We just learned about the immense power of the tongue. With great power comes great responsibility. Or I'd rather say what Jesus says to whom much was given, of him much will be required. You have been given a very, very powerful instrument, your tongue. There will be something required of you. Your tongue is not only powerful, but it can be ferocious, destructive. It will be a fire that burns up everything that gets near it. You have the power to hurt and destroy all in your path. You have the ability to tear relationships apart, to break others' hearts, to bring much sorrow to people through your words. Your words are so extremely important. So practically, we need to ask ourselves the question, how do we use our speech? Let's think about the different contexts. How do you speak to your coworkers? How do you speak to your fellow believers? How do you speak to strangers? So far, you're probably doing pretty well. Now let's get to the harder stuff. How do you speak to your spouse? How do you speak to your kids? How do you speak to your siblings? How do you speak to your enemies? Whether political or neighborhood enemies or whatever stupid stuff that's in your way that you call people enemies about. How do you speak to those people? How do you speak, one more thing, this is where Jesus is going, right? How do you speak in your own head? What are the thoughts and words that you form when you can't even help yourself because they come out of your heart? That's the real problem. 
Does bitterness, cursing, quarreling, or anger characterize your speech? Does unclean conversation or vulgar talk easily roll off your tongue, coarse joking? Do you gossip or lie or deceive, possibly? Do you flatter with your tongue others, using it for your own gain? Guys, number one, easy thing. We must bridle our tongue. We must control our words and our speech. But there's a much bigger message for us today. If we stop with this exhortation, we will all be miserable. We'll try and try and try and try again with very little success at actually bridling our tongue. I'm telling you, you should bridle your tongue. But there's something far more important for us to understand how to bridle the tongue. Look at verse 8. I said I would come back to verse 8, and I said it was a key verse for us. I think that this is the crux of the Christian argument, and we must understand it if we are going to do anything of James's teaching. Do you remember what it said? There is no one of the human species that can tame the tongue. That pretty much does it for us. We are all of the human species, as far as I know. And none of us are able then to bridle or tame the tongue. It is impossible for any one of the human species to tame it. None of us in this room or in the world are able to do it. With this statement then, I can't help but adopt the same sadness that the Apostle John did in Revelation 5. Do you remember this? That who he wept loudly when no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. No one was able to do it or look into it. There's no hope for humanity. No one could be found on the earth, under the earth, everywhere. No one could do it. There's no hope for mankind. But then, there is no hope for humanity because humanity itself cannot save itself. Let me go back to Revelation again, chapter 5. There is hope. There is a glorious hope in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who contained the tongue? Jesus Christ, the Word of God revealed to men. The one who actually is called the Word, ironically. But it was not an area of speech only. Jesus did all the things that James has already talked about, right? He sought wisdom from God. He was a doer of the Word. He trusted the Father. He loved the Father. He obeyed the Father. He loved the world around him, all of the world, impartially. And he kept himself unstained from the world. Guys, Jesus is the answer. Period. Jesus is the answer. I hope that to the day I die that we will proclaim this at Cornerstone the rest of my life that we will go down swinging that Jesus is the answer. You cannot bridle your tongue. You are unable to tame it. You, the species of mankind, of humanity, you can't do it. But Jesus can. Listen to what he says here. Revelation 5, 5. And one of the elders said to me, Hey, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Brothers and sisters, do you despair over your own sin? Do you get beaten down because you realize you can't tame your tongue? You realize that you can't love your neighbors impartially? Are you overcome with despair 
because you realize your desperate state. Good. You get it. But the gospel is the good news that Jesus conquered and that he is our only hope today and forever. Don't despair. Our king has conquered, and if he has conquered sin and death and hell, he has most certainly the power to conquer your tongue. Hallelujah. So then what? Cling tightly to Jesus, brothers and sisters. That is our only hope. When we see him as the answer, we rely fully on his finished work, and we watch as he exercises dominion over our speech. And he uses it for greater purposes because he knows and can use it for his glory. And as we love and obey him, we watch him doing these things. So cling tightly to, to Jesus and bridle your tongue. Let's pray. God, these things are too wonderful for us. We see the depths of our sin and we realize that we are without hope that we are racing towards hell. Sin and misery, all of it is overcoming. But Jesus, the one who has conquered, the one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. God, we beg of you to work in our hearts. Would you conquer our own hearts so that our faith would now work itself out in bridling our tongue? that we would not be like the world and that the, 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 the spit of our mouth of, of venom and, and deadly poison would come out, polluting everything around us, but rather that we would have the sweetness of the gospel on our lips. God, control our tongue. May our hearts be conquered by Jesus. And would you use us for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.